and welcome to Feed and Flourish, the bite-sized podcast series from the Closters Forum with me, Hannah McInnes. In this series, I'll be talking to experts about biodiversity and about ways in which we can transform our food systems in order to positively preserve our planet. The Closters Forum brings together thought leaders and decision makers in the Swiss Alps to inspire discussions and cultivate collaborations around some of the world's most pressing environmental challenges. Hello, my name is Patrick Holden. I'm the founder and chief executive of the Sustainable Food Trust. And I'm also a farmer in West Wales. We have a dairy herd. We make cheese from the milk of our Ayrshire cows. And uh, it actually is the longest established organic dairy farm in Wales now. We've been here for 47 years. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Sustainable Food Trust? Why did you set it up? What's its aim, its mission statement? Well, for many years, I worked for the Soil Association, which is the leading uh, advocate of of organic farming, including certification. Um, But around 2010, I became convinced that if we were to adequately address climate change and biodiversity loss and the food security challenges, which have been highlighted by the um, coronavirus pandemic, we needed not to change a small section of our farming systems to organic production, but the whole of our agriculture to principles which were inside uh, planetary boundaries and which are addressing these major threats to humankind. And we set up the Sustainable Food Trust to be a catalyst to accelerate this change, this transition towards more sustainable food systems. And when you talk of threats to humankind and great environmental crises, what is it that you're chiefly referring to? What is it that's in your mind as the greatest problems we face right now? Well, if you look at the contributors towards uh, climate change, it's now increasingly realised that agriculture is right up there, possibly even number one, because um, if you look at the way in which the planet is used, Uh, by far the majority of the habitable land area is farmed. And unfortunately, in the last 50 or 60 years, intensive farming methods, which have become more or less uh, universal, are highly exploitative, but also cause major emissions of greenhouse gases and uh, have contributed massively to the loss of biodiversity. And in combination, those threats uh, could cause uh, irreversible climate change and catastrophic loss of biodiversity. And if we're going to reverse them, yes, we, sh- we need to uh, stop burning fossil fuels and travel less and all the things we're having to do, as we've noticed in terms of their impact on the environment during the COVID-19 crisis. But actually, once we get out of this, we need to change the way we farm. And if we were to change the way we farm and switch to farming systems which are working in harmony with nature, we could actually take CO2 out of the atmosphere and re-sequester it back in the soil, as well as producing healthy and health-promoting food without diminishing any further the natural capital that we've been mining in agriculture during my farming lifetime. And I want to come on to that very much and to talk to you about the hopeful positives we can take away from this current crisis. But just to take a step back and look at the more general problems with our food system, I know you've written a recent piece and would say that those problems are that we have a very centralised food system, that we have a commodity-based supermarket sourcing system 
and that you yourself are a casualty of that process. Could you tell us a little bit about why these processes are detrimental to the planet and to the health of the environment and and how we actually got to a place of using these systems in the first instance? I believe that access to secure and sustainable supplies of healthy food are a crucial precondition for a civilised society. And uh, until round about the Second World War, um, our food systems were local and relatively sustainable and secure. But after the last food security emergency, which took place in the Second World War, when the U-boats were sinking all the convoys and we simply literally uh, didn't have enough to eat. Uh, after the war, there was a determined uh, policy change to make sure we, we would never be hungry again. And that set into motion the chemical chapter of agriculture, which has been highly exploitative. But it has also increasingly led to a centralisation of production, packing and distribution of all the food we eat. So now if you go into a supermarket, uh, you find that nearly all the food that uh, you buy will come from fewer and fewer intensive farmers who are supplying highly centralised packing stations, abattoirs in the case of livestock and distribution centres. Um, and the farmers have become commodity slaves, farming intensively, often only barely covering the cost of their production. And we don't know where our food comes from. If you try to find out when you go around a supermarket where your food comes from, it's very difficult. You can't tell who produced it, what the method of production was, uh, or how it got to you. And in a way, that's the consequence of uh, decades of this um, industrialized and centralized food system, which I would say, as the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has shown us, leads to food insecurity during an emergency. Now, I know that so far, the supermarket shelves have remained relatively well stocked. But actually, um, there is an immense fragility of our food systems. People say, talk about nine meals from anarchy. In other words, if the food supply suddenly stopped within three days, uh, it would be very unstable indeed. And the antidote to that is to know where your food is coming from and to buy it from producers who you know, who are reasonably close to you, at least in relation to the staple crops that we can produce in this country. So I think the antidote to this food insecurity is for more and more of us to use our buying power, which is collectively really powerful, to purchase as great a percentage of our staple foods, that means the salads, the fresh vegetables, the dairy, the eggs, and the cereals, which all can be grown in this country, and of course the fresh meat too, from suppliers who we know about, preferably where they farm, even their names would be best of all, and who are using sustainable systems. And if we do that and we show our loyalty to those producers, that they are the building blocks of the sustainable food system that needs to replace the one we've got at the moment. And it's very interesting that over the last few weeks, there's been incredible innovation within the farming community. Lots of people are selling online. Uh, there are pop-up farmers markets, even drive-through farmers markets. Mail order is thriving. And in most cases, this is about producers who have made contact, direct contact with their 
consuming counterparts because in many cases uh, there's been a cessation of the supply that they used to um, rely on due, for instance, to the closure of restaurants, uh, the difficulty with exporting food at the moment. So it's it, this crisis has led to an enormous amount of innovation and massive public interest in moving towards more secure and sustainable food sourcing. It's really interesting. So you think that how we've responded to corona is in some ways a sort of blueprint for how we should live in the future. And I mean, your words were it could bring about a renaissance in the local food market. I believe it could. And I think there's a sort of Dunkirk spirit about it as well. It's it's an inspiring, empowering action that we can take. And it's not anti-supermarket per se. I mean, most of us will continue to be dependent to a degree on our supermarkets. But I think it's so empowering and uh, inspiring to actually uh, make contact with producers whose stories we know and to buy their products. It actually improves the quality of our life to act like that. And I think that hundreds of thousands of people are already doing that. And I believe this is going to be the lasting legacy of the pandemic. The problem is, isn't it, that that's a dream for most people the meat that's affordable, the food that's affordable, the cheapest food is from the supermarket and your local farmer's market or being in touch with your local producer is infinitely more expensive. That's certainly true that the food we buy in supermarkets appears very affordable and cheap. But actually, we produced a report in 2017 called The Hidden Cost of UK Food. And the headline conclusion of that report is that for every pound we spend in the shops, mainly supermarkets, on food, there's another hidden pound uh, in caused related to damage to the environment, destruction of natural capital, damage to human health, which doesn't appear on the price tag. And that's because the polluter doesn't pay and the sustainable producers, people like us, are not being adequately rewarded for the farming systems we're practicing. Now, if the government was to take action and make sure that all those costs were appropriately allocated, this would bring down the cost to the public of sustainably produced food, and it would bring the unsustainable food, which appears cheap at the moment but isn't really because the pricing is dishonest, uh, up to a level where the choice would not be so extreme. But you are right at the moment, the market is sending all the wrong signals to us all. And I know you feel quite strongly that the people who are going to bring about these changes you want to see are citizens. What is our role then as individuals? Do you see that role as more important than the role of government, for example, in bringing about big societal change? Yes, I believe that this change from industrial to regenerative and health-promoting food systems will be driven by individual citizens using their buying power, but also their collective influence as voters. Because in the end, the government, all governments, are driven uh, by wanting to get re-elected. And their perception, probably correct until now, has been that food isn't really a political issue. Or if it is, it's mainly about the cheapness and the affordability of food, not its provenance and its sustainability. And if enough of us start to say, no, that's not right, we now realise that uh, half a century of industrial farming has uh, damaged 
the environment, has destroyed biodiversity, has led to increased climate change and is threatening human health. And we want the government to act on our behalf to change the economic environment in which all food producers operate to make it more easy for farmers to switch to sustainable methods. That could happen. And I believe that there are farmers leaders, I'm going on a call this afternoon with the National Farmers Union, all over the world who recognise that Although they've just been following the money, which is completely understandable, if you're a farmer, you have to do that unless you've got a daily job like me. Uh, the farming systems that they've been operating haven't really been in the public interest. They want to change. They just need the help from the government and from us. So what would you say then that a perfect future looks like if we were to get it all right where biodiversity is concerned and particularly with regards to how we farm? What would you advocate? What does that faultless future look like? I think it starts with the individual food stories behind our daily meals. We need to think every time we eat of the connection we are making with farming because uh, it's actually true that we are connected with agriculture three times a day but these days uh, the food is anonymous and the story behind it is not known to us. We need to change that so when we eat we do feel connected to the land and the farmers and their stories and their relationship with the environment. And I believe that that's a, a crucially important relationship, which is uh, affirming and related to our own sense of security and identity. If we know where our food comes from, um, we feel better about it. And we can exercise our buying power to reforge these links using the power of the internet, using technology which wasn't available to us before, and challenging the orthodoxy, which is dominating at the moment in our very industrialised and centralised food systems, including going into our lo local supermarket and saying, look, I can't find the kind of food I want. Where is the food from local producers? Where is the sustainably produced food from farmers whose stories I can know about? And if they don't respond, people should take their custom elsewhere. In terms then of where we should take our custom, and in terms of thinking very carefully, as you say, about what we should eat... Can I ask you what your thoughts are on meat consumption? People say that we should be massively reducing our meat eating, perhaps even not eating meat at all. What do you think about that? How much of an impact does whether we do or do not choose to eat meat have on biodiversity and on our environment? Well, I think that there's been a lot of confusion in relation to the question, what should I eat to be healthy and sustainable? And many people, especially young people, have concluded, uh, supported by important and influential voices, the most uh, um, responsible thing to do is to not only eat less meat, but give up eating meat altogether. But we would say in the sustainable farming community that if we were all to switch to regenerative farming practices, which build soil and protect biodiversity, actually animals that are looked after in a compassionate way and fed on grass if they're beef or sheep are actually a central part of the system that needs to replace the one we've got at the moment. So rather than saying um, meat is bad, we should say that intensively farmed meats such as intensive poultry and intensive pork and permanently housed cattle in feedlots, they're the kind of livestock that we don't want to see around anymore and we should give up eating those products and instead transfer our loyalty to the sustainably managed 
compassionately farmed livestock, which are part of these sustainable farming systems. And of course, critically, we need to know the difference between the two. So we need the public to be well informed about the kind of animals that are part of the solution and how they are farmed and those which are absolutely part of the problem. Now, if we apply those principles in our diets and in our purchasing power, we will definitely eat less meat overall. But the meat we should eat less of is the uh, is the intensive chicken and pork, as I said, and those consumption of those meats is actually going up at the moment. But what we need to do above all is to link our future diets to the sustainable output of the farming systems which need to replace the ones we've got at the moment. And in the case of the United Kingdom, we are two thirds grassland. The only way we can turn that grassland into food is to graze it with beef cattle or dairy cattle or sheep. So those animals, which are free range, outside and building soil, we can eat with an absolutely clear conscience. For people who have switched to vegan or vegetarian diets for ethical reasons, that's absolutely to be respected. And I wouldn't want to challenge that at all. However, if you've given up eating meat and livestock products for environmental reasons, uh, this may not be actually in the best interests of society as a whole in wanting to support the transition towards truly sustainable farming systems. Because without livestock, in the case of um, the United Kingdom, mainly uh, cattle and sheep, uh, who have been demonised because of their methane emissions, and a lot of people think it's wrong to eat the meat and they're giving it up. But without them, we can't maintain the soil carbon bank, which we actually need to build to address climate change. So I would say to people who are vegetarian for environmental reasons, think very hard about whether you could transfer some of your loyalty to supporting those regenerative farmers whose systems actually we need for the future. There is so much more we could discuss, of course, but I'm going to have to wrap it up for the sake of bite-sized podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much indeed for talking to me. 